Hello and welcome to Posting Up, the Washington Post NBA podcast. I'm your host, Tim Bontemps, National NBA writer for the Washington Post, joined today by my good friend and colleague, Kent Babb, who wrote an excellent story uh, last week about uh, former NBA star, Hall of Famer, and now uh, Georgetown coach, Patrick Ewing, which is what we're going to spend most of this podcast talking about. So, Kent, how, uh, how's it going and how, how is uh, being home with the baby? It's, it's going pretty well. It's, uh, let, let's just say that writing about Patrick Ewing is easier than fatherhood, at least for me. But, but hey, I've got a little more practice with the journalism thing, uh, so I'll take it. Yeah, you'll be just fine with the dad thing too, I'm sure. Uh, but you, uh, you wrote you wrote a great story about Pat and his transition from being uh, basically a creature of the NBA for the past 30 years, ever since he left Georgetown in 1985, to now coaching the Georgetown Hoyas and trying to revive a program that's really fallen on hard times. So I guess my first question for you would be, you know, in your in the time you spent reporting the story and kind of being around Pat, what what were some of the things that stood out to you most about his transition and and some of the things that might make it difficult for him to to really get used to the intricacies of coaching in college as opposed to being in the NBA? Yeah, so I mean, the thing that he has never ever done is the hardest thing in his new job. I mean, like he has never in his life had to recruit anybody He's never had to sell himself on anything. I mean, he since he's probably been, what, 16 years old, he has been Patrick Ewing. I mean, he's this, you know, kind of literal and figurative giant who nobody mistakes. You know, I mean, he's seven feet tall. He's a famous guy, like super famous in the 80s and 90s. And so he's just not a guy who's had to, like, ask for things. I mean, that's just in anything. I mean, like, he's people know him in restaurants. People know him at airports. And, like, he's never had to be like, hey, I'm Pat. I'm Pat. Like, help me out with this. And so now, like, that is the single most important thing he'll do. And I don't – so, I mean, I spent a couple of months reporting this in kind of various different ways while he got his footing and kind of observing here and there. And I don't know if he yet realizes how hard it's going to be or at least how traditionally hard it is. And so the other part of that is I think he has an incredible message. It's unique. It's, you know, it, it's really good. I think it's really appealing to young guys – who see themselves playing in the NBA sometime, but he's an incredibly reluctant messenger and he just, he doesn't think that he has to play the game in a lot of ways, in particular with the AAU circuit. And, and in some ways I get it. And so like, I could probably make an argument, a fairly convincing argument. I think that he will succeed like at the highest level and he could fail. And after the six year contract is done, it just won't work. I mean, because this is a massive adjustment to the point that I firmly believe and, and I'd like to hear what you think about this, because, uh, I mean, you, you you were in some ways a creature of the NBA. But if he succeeds the way he thinks he'll succeed, I think he's going to change the way college basketball recruiting is done because he doesn't do social media. All coaches do social media. He's not like a super energetic, burst into the door, John Calipari type of recruiter. And C, he just he doesn't want to have to get in bed with the AAU circuit. And so he like I, I mean, if you read the story, like I, I talked to a lot of guys and that. The one person I, I sort of blindly quote is not alone. There are a lot of AAU people, in particular in the D.C. area, who are very frustrated because they haven't heard from Patrick Ewing yet. And, and I don't mean, you know, they haven't been wined and dined by him. I mean that they have not heard from him. And I think that's really jarring to a lot of these guys who, when other coaches in this region get their jobs, they spend the first couple of weeks reaching out, seeing who's important, seeing who can help them, seeing who kind of wants to invest in whatever program that they're a part of. A very key person that Patrick Ewing absolutely should know, and I've got to be careful with how I say this, had to reach out to Ewing. And, you know, that's it's I think 
basketball people can probably figure out at least close to who this is, but somebody who Pat will really need and should know is like an easy contact. Pat didn't call him. This person had to call Pat, and that's weird. And I think it's doubly weird for the people who have existed in this basketball community who actually want to see Georgetown succeed. Yeah, I I agree with you. I think, you know, I know Pat a little bit um, from being in New York for a long time and being around the NBA for a while. And he, when you say he's a reluctant messenger, he's just a reluctant messenger, period. Like, he's not a guy, despite the fact that he is one of the most famous basketball players of all time, you know, a top 50 player in the history of the NBA, one of the greatest college players of all time. Uh, he, he's not a guy that likes the spotlight. He's not a guy that craves attention. Um, he, he's more than happy to just do his job and not have anybody pay attention to him. Um, so it, it is it is jarring to see him have to step now into this college environment like you were going through, you know, where you've got guys like Tom Crean and John Calipari and Rick Pitino and all these guys that are, you know, running around and, you know, they're, they're jumping on tables and yelling about how great their program is and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And, and I thought, you know, the, the way you kind of summed up Pat pretty well in the story where he, he just kind of, he is who he is um, and he says what he's going to say and he doesn't feel like he has to kowtow to anybody. And, you know, that, that is kind of the, 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 the essence of what being a college guy is right is like right now. You see all these coaches, whether it's Calipari or Patino or all these guys flirt with going to the NBA or some of them actually go to the NBA. Why do they do it? They go because they don't want to deal with recruiting and they don't want to deal with having to get down on a knee for AAU coaches and parents and 16-year-old kids. So I agree with you. I think if Pat can find a way to succeed doing that and not doing all the things that all these coaches really hate and make them all want to leave college athletics and go to the NBA where they don't have to deal with it all the time. I do think it has a chance to potentially be a paradigm shift in the industry. I just don't see it. I think it's going to be tough for that to work, though, both because everyone else is going to be doing it, so it's going to be tough for that to work, and also, you know, as, as I think we're going to get to in a bit here, there's some inherent challenges at being at Georgetown right now that I think are going to be really tough for Pat to overcome. And I talked to some college basketball coaches, and I mean, it's, it's interesting to me, and I think this is somewhat revealing of that industry in general. Now, I should disclose this, by, or disclose that I tend to be a little bit more of a college basketball fan. And so, you know, I kind of like the college basketball ecosystem that exists, and, you know, like these coaches in a lot of ways, you know, they're, they kind of, they'll be more honest with you, I feel like. And, and I could be wrong about that, and this just could be my little reporting bubble. But in my experience, I think coaches tend to be, A, a little more honest, and B, a little more catty. You know, they will talk some smack. and The catty you know, part I will 100% agree with. That, <laughs> and that so, is definitely and I, true. And I experienced this. I mean, so when I was at the Peach Jam, which is, you know, this huge Nike-endorsed AAU tournament uh, down in South Carolina, just north of Augusta, Georgia, and, like, I had several people from other programs talk to me about how Pat Ewing is not taking notes. He's just got his headphones on all the time, man. Why is he on his phone nonstop? Look at Shaka smart over there. He's taking notes, you know, on players he's not even recruiting. And Pat's just sort of like looking at his phone the whole time. And I do think in some ways, Patrick Ewing is a little bit of a ceremonial head coach. Like I think he can coach. I think he can really succeed on the on court technical aspect it's, and again, I mean, I, this all comes back to the recruiting thing, but I had a, a major college head coach tell me that, and this is not an exact quote, but it's pretty close, that I don't see Patrick Ewing as competition. In fact, I don't think anybody sees Patrick Ewing as competition. And, you know, whether that's true or not, or whether that's an exact 
exaggeration or not, you know, whatever. But I do think that some of those opinions exist out there that, hey, Patrick Ewing is here and that's cool. And, you know, Georgetown has this great mascot and has brought home one of its favorite sons. But he ain't going to beat me for a recruit. He's just not because he doesn't know how to do it. And so many of these coaches have 20 or 25 years of experience, not just in establishing a network of who matters and who doesn't, what events matter and which don't, but also they know what their pitch is. Like they know they have their voice as a recruiter. And, and again, Pat has never had to do that. The NBA, at least I think on paper, personnel is simple. You pay them and you say that you can win a championship. I know it's probably a little more nuanced than that, but you don't have to find out who the best friend or the girlfriend or the grandma or the AU guy, you don't have to find out who that person is and then what they want to hear just in order to get in the door with the player. And so, yeah, I mean, I understand like at the highest level, you've got agents and you've got probably, you know, some handlers, things like that. But to me anyway, it's a much more intricate process in which you have to bury your pride and pretend like you don't have an ego, even if you do. And I don't know if Patrick Ewing of all people is capable of that. Yeah, I mean, there there is a lot. There are obviously like the 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 process of going after a high profile free agent, whether it's a Kevin Durant or Paul George, as we've seen with this Magic Johnson tampering stuff this week. I mean, there there there's some there's some recruiting that goes into that, but you're also dealing with adults, not kids, and you're also dealing with a select number of people, and so it's it's just a far it's a far different thing than like you said having to try to you know, ingratiate yourself with this whole host of people who have no relationship with you, have no idea who you are, and then you have to, like, make your way in and then try to sell the kid on coming to play at your school. I mean, it's just a, it's a vastly different circumstance. And but, but that's why, and you hit on this a minute ago, that's why I think you don't often see NBA people, like straight-up NBA coaches, yep. go coach in college. You yep. see the opposite of that, and it's because recruiting sucks. I mean, like, that's oh, just yeah. a fact. I mean, like, that part sucks. And the only reason that every college basketball coach doesn't at least admit that, I'm sure they know it in some ways, but that's the world they know. I mean, like most of these guys, they've never dealt in that other universe. And, and, and you know, you and I know this, and I hope, you know, basketball fans know this, but I'll say it anyway. These two leagues, if, if I'll call them that, professional basketball and college basketball are not similar. I mean, they're really not in how and how it works. I mean, the on-court product is related you know, there is it's related that there's the a same. basketball and there's hoops. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> Nothing that's else is it. the same. But how these teams are constructed and what makes them succeed and the hoops that coaches have to jump through are incredibly different. Just incredibly different. And you know, I I'm gonna I could try to make a terrible analogy, but I'm gonna spare myself some embarrassment for once. <laughs> but like there's it, they're just not the same. And, and I, I don't know. There was a time when I was reporting the story that I wondered if Patrick Ewing regretted it. And I don't think he does. You know, I, I don't. I fully don't after meeting with him and spending some time with him. But I wondered if, man, the idea of coming home and coaching at Georgetown and taking the big John baton and, you know, bringing us back kind of thing. If the idea of that sounded really good, but now three or four months in, the reality of having to go to Vegas and Kansas and South Carolina Basically, just to show your face, you can't even really talk to the kids if he's just like, Jesus, like, what have I done? Well, and that you know, was the one quote that stood out to me when he kind of was like, when you guys were just going back and forth, and he's like, the, the one thing that really stood out with him was about the amount of flying he has to do now. Like, I thought, I thought that was interesting, kind of just along those lines. And he was, I think the exact quote was something along the lines of, you know, you know, damn, there's just a lot of flying. 
Yeah, you know. they're flying all over the place. Yeah, GD. Yeah, and you know, like he he said, that was the biggest challenge so far. And like, luckily for him, you know, it's it's easier for me to fold myself up into a Southwest Airlines seat than it is for a guy who's seven feet tall and super famous. He's lucky that he has a charter jet that he can take to most of these places. He he flies commercial sometime, but for the most part, he's able. Like he when he went to Vegas and we went to Lawrence, Kansas for another AAU tournament. He was at least able to take the Georgetown jet, which is huge. And, like, that's something that not every first-time coach has access to. That's not something a lot of coaches have, period. Right. And so, like, that's something, honestly, that a lot of these coaches have to really negotiate. And it winds up being as important, and, and a lot of times, as the salary, just, like, whether I can come and go as I please. And But, again, I mean, like, that's yet another – I mean, that's reason number 382 of why college basketball <laughs> is different. Yeah. And, you know, so – I think it's just like the coming and going, the kowtowing, the you know trash talk that some of these AAU coaches were doing to me. And I told Pat about what, what was being said. Somebody called him lazy. Now, I don't think he's lazy. I think that's the last thing he is. But the fact that that opinion exists within the population that he must depend most on is going to be an issue for him. No, there's no question. I mean, he, he's fighting an uphill battle on a lot of fronts. And look, I, I, don't, I don't think this is wrong for me to say. Pat, Pat Ewing didn't spend over a decade as an assistant coach in the NBA to go coach at Georgetown, right? Like, he, he wanted to be an NBA head coach, and he, he, he did it the right way. He went and was an assistant under great coaches, Steve Clifford, Jeff Van Gundy, Stan Van Gundy. Um, by all accounts, is a really good assistant coach. That's all I've ever heard is that he, he does a good job. Players like working with him. Uh, coaches like working with him. Um, I've universally heard that. But this is a guy that clearly wanted to coach in the NBA. And, I, you know, I, I agree with you. I don't think he necessarily would regret his decision to go to Georgetown right now. But I do think it's fair to wonder how this is going to shake out when this is a guy who clearly had one objective in mind for a long time. And then this situation kind of, you know, just popped up. And it was, it was kind of a natural fit given where Georgetown was at the obvious connections he has with the program, with Big John, who we'll get to in a minute. Um, it, it just made a lot of sense for him to go back there and, and be part of that. Um, this is not something I put in the story I should have now that I'm thinking about it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I asked him straight up. This was the last thing I asked him in, in a pretty long interview a couple weeks ago, that if the NBA came calling, even though he's at his alma mater, would, you know, is he basically just biding his time as a college coach until he, like, now that he's got – now that he will have a little bit of that head coaching experience, which is theoretically what one of the issues was with him getting an NBA job, right? would he listen? And he said yes. I mean, it was a little more complicated coming from him. It was just like, man, people are already nervous about that here at Georgetown. But, you know, he definitely said to me that if an NBA team called, he would listen. Now, I don't think that necessarily means that, that he would take it, but I think... The fact that he's not just like no, I'm a. It shows. It shows where his head now. is at, right? I mean, right. it shows. This like, is a guy that was this guy. This is a guy who you said at the beginning is a creature of the NBA, wanted to be in the NBA, and now is in college. And I think the his entire tenure at Georgetown is going to be framed, I think, through that prism. And because he is doing things in a different way, he isn't. He isn't doing the kiss in the ring stuff. He isn't bending down the AU people. He isn't. He isn't doing the stuff that, like you said from the beginning, the traditional college coach goes and does. So if it doesn't work, it's going to come back to: Did this guy ever care about doing this? Was this just, you know, hey, I could go back to Georgetown and get the head coach a job I've been waiting to get in the NBA, and I'm not going to get now. I mean, is that that? I think I think and, and that's going to hang out there for plan. a while. Like I like, and and I think yeah, I think that's going to be part of the discussion. I don't think that's his plan. I honestly don't think that's his plan. 
you know, I think he's just sort of leaving the door open. And, and, and in one way, like, I think he's reflect, refreshingly candid about some of these things that, yep. again, some of these more polished college basketball coaches would be able to talk their way around and not have to necessarily be honest about. But here's one of my terrible analogies that I'm <laughs> so willing usually to volunteer. Like, I grew up in a small town, and, and uh, you know, I left that in, like, since I've been gone, like, the idea of living in that small town again, like, it's charming to me. And just like, man, I'd love, I'd love to someday go back, and that would be great. But, like, I've since lived in cities that are super cool and accessible and all this. So, in other words, I don't think I would fit in the small town that I feel like is home, that quote-unquote home anymore. And I think sure. that's kind of where Pat is. Like, I think that Georgetown, to him, the idea of home was really appealing, really attractive to him. The reality of home, just like with me, if I went home to my small town, I don't think is quite, like, that would be like me leaving the D.C. area and going back to Spartanburg, South Carolina. It would be hard. And, and it's just the charm that's in my mind about, you know, what this life was that I once knew, you know, when I was coming of age. Yeah. It's just not the same as it really is. And I think that's some of what Pat is going to go through here. Just like the reality is a lot harder than kind of this charming wonderful part of his life that he must remember no as someone who as someone else who grew up in a small town in the middle of nowhere i uh, i agree completely with that it's it's that's actually not a terrible analogy but i and i think and i think if you're looking at if you're looking at this situation for pat you know there, there are you know there there were a lot of things that drew him back there and one of them is you know big john thompson who kind of hangs over the program and, and and you did a nice job of kind of laying that out in the story even though he wouldn't talk to you for it um you know, Pat, Pat, I thought had a pretty good response to your questions about John's influence on him, which I want you to get into. But just how how much do you think he is going to be an influence on what Pat is doing? And do you do you think that, you know, along the lines of what Pat said, like I said, I want you to get into. Do you think he'll be able to follow through on his uh, current pledge in terms of, you know, being able to run the program the way he feels that he can? So very briefly for the, the uninitiated, as I, I feel like a lot of your audience is probably more NBA fans, Big John Thompson, the guy who basically created the program 45 years ago, went on to win a national championship with Patrick Ewing in 1984 and has become kind of this larger-than-life presence in college basketball. He is Georgetown's Dean Smith. He retired 18 years ago, or stepped down 18 years ago, and has since retired, but it's always sort of been all in the family. And that makes pe some people in the Georgetown universe nervous. I mean, even people who are in administration, there's like, this is a couple years ago, wondering, okay, how do we push out the guy or distance ourselves from the guy who created the program? Like, you know, it's a Kaiser Soze thing. Like, how do you, like, how do you do that? I mean, like, it, it's an impossible task. And so you just sort of let him go to the games, you let him go to the practices where he'll sometimes, you know, bark out some instructions. He is still kind of in charge. And, a lot of people, including former players and administrators and fans, still fear that this is not Patrick Ewing's program. And the only reason that Pat got the job is because it was due to the approval of Big John. And the only reason that Big John is still hanging around that has an office and will probably be at games a lot uh, courtside um, is because Patrick Ewing. And so basically, in other words, if anybody but Pat had gotten the job, John wouldn't have been able to hang around. And if John wasn't still hanging around, maybe somebody besides Pat would have gotten the job, if that makes sense. I know that's a little odd, but that's just the quick catch-up thing. But a lot of people still are very much nervous. And Georgetown people are kind of defensive about this, which makes me curious. I mean, I think they're very loudly trying to say that John Thompson is not in charge anymore, that he was not consulted on who to hire, that 
you know, he will not be involved in recruiting or, you know, things like that, which he kind of loosely was under his son, John Thompson, the third. And, you know, and, and I agree with you. I think Pat did a really good job of answering these questions definitively. Now, I think it's different to say in an interview, which he's probably been prepped for and knows that this kind of question is coming. And then when John Thompson, your mentor, who's like a, still a very close friend, who's like a grandfatherly figure to you, is maybe the most important person in your entire career. If he says, look, Pat, I just want to come to practice. Is that cool? That's hard to say no to. It just is. And but it also has a little bit of a corrosive effect on Patrick Ewing's ability to assert himself as authority. If he's the boss, he needs to be the boss. And I think he is. But it's still that's going to be an ongoing challenge for him. And, and, and certainly people in that community think it's going to be, you know, maybe a losing battle, but he's just not going to be able to manage Big John because Big John has been a king there for almost five decades. And how do you tell a guy who Georgetown basketball basically would not exist, at least as a cultural symbol and a national champion, to piss off? How do you do that? I don't think you can. Yeah, I, I don't think you can either, especially if you are, like you said, if you are Pat Ewing, who, you know, if, whether he's a grandfatherly figure or a father figure, I mean, there's there's probably not five people in Pat's life who are more important to him than John Thompson. And I'm sure the fact that John called him and said, I want you to come back and coach here was no small part of why he took that job. But, you know, to your point, it, it does leave him in a very awkward spot because, You've already got, like we've detailed earlier, all these people who you know are going to be negatively recruiting against him, saying he's just there as a ceremonial guy and he, he's you know doing a cruise. He's just cruising around. He's not really going to put in the work. He's an NBA guy. Um, he doesn't he doesn't understand what this is like. And then on the other side, you're going to have people you know looking at Big John, you know, being at practice or being at games or being around, and they're just going to be able to say, oh yeah, he's just there because because of Big John. If he wasn't there, they would have hired somebody else i mean and and for people who think that john thompson is just going to go away i mean john thompson is a a 610 dude even now as an old man he's still a larger than life presence at georgetown games he's just right on the baseline i mean he's just he just he takes up every room that he just takes up all the space in every room that he's in and it's going to be really difficult for pat it would have been difficult for any coach but i think it's going to be really difficult for pat to follow through on what he said. And I hope he does because I like Pat and I, I think he's a really sharp basketball mind. I think you did a nice job, you know, going and going and finding people who have worked with Pat, who, you know, I've heard the same things. Like he's a guy that people really respect in the NBA for his work ethic and his willingness to go out and grind and, you know, be an assistant for a long time and not, you know, be, Hey, I'm a hall of famer. I should be getting a head coaching job right away. I mean, he, he did all the right things. And I think, I think has positioned himself really well to to do well on the court um, as a coach, but there there's all this other stuff floating around with him with this Georgetown job that you know whether it's recruiting or with John or this other stuff that I I do think is going to make it a real challenge for him to succeed the way he's going to want to. It is fascinatingly complicated there, and you know, like I'm glad I'm not a Georgetown fan because I'd be pulling my hair out right now because of, <laughs> right. of, of all this of all this. Hey, what's the most important thing about a new coach or any coach? The ability to recruit. Well, I don't know how willing he's going to be to do, you know, go to all the links. Is it really his program? Is he the boss? You know, like the negative recruiting thing, I think, is really interesting. I mean, I'm sure in some ways that happens in the NBA and in every sport, you know, just like you don't want to go there. That place is terrible. But I think there's some really easy pickings for, for those who are recruiting against Georgetown to just bring up all these things. And that's why I think in, in one way, 
so th- th- a lot of what I've been saying so far is part of the argument why I am skeptical of Pat succeeding at Georgetown. Right. The other side of this argument that I think is really important to point out is that he, he does have the most unique message, I believe, in college basketball. And so, and I pointed this out in the piece, but um, so many of these college basketball coaches still play the student athlete card and just like, oh, you know, you're coming for four years and we're going to graduate our players and, and blah, blah, blah. And everybody kind of rolls their eyes at that. I don't know, even the hardest core fans really think that that's the truth, but it's just still some little outdated thing that these coaches think they have to say. Patrick Ewing does not burden himself with that stuff. And I think that's cool. I personally think that's cool. You know, he and there's a couple other people. And this is one of the reasons Calipari is so successful is, you know, hey, recruit, if you want to go to the NBA, I'm going to get you there. I know the way. Here's my roadmap. I used to live in the NBA for 30 plus years. I can get you there. And to me, that is so uniquely effective that, you know, but but of what use is a great message if you can't get through the door to deliver that message, if that makes sense. And so (laughs) I think if he makes a few little compromises with himself, if he says, okay, I said I'm not going to kiss the ring, well, maybe I will a little bit. You know, I'm going to manage Big John. Well, you know, maybe I'll publicly do that. I don't think them pulling out of that tournament a couple weeks ago was a great idea. And that's sort of out of context, I guess, here. But, like, they just very mysteriously dropped out of a tournament. It's because they're afraid they're going to get boat raced by, like, Michigan State, beat by, like, 50. But to me, I think that's a perfect opportunity for Patrick Ewing, after they get boat raced by Michigan State, to have a press conference to say, look, like, appeal to the recruits. This is what Cal does so well. Appeal to those recruits. Look into the camera and say, look, I was brought here to turn around a program that needed modernizing, and this is why we need players who want to play hard, who won't allow themselves to get beat by 50 by Michigan State. Come help me. You know where I am. I'm Patrick Ewing. I'll see you at Georgetown. Like, to to me, that is a perfect opportunity to announce yourself. And a loss, in some ways, is not even a bad thing. In fact, I think that helps them. But they don't want to do it. And Georgetown is weird, and so therefore they just dropped out of the tournament, this nationally televised deal with ESPN, which, whatever, that's their prerogative. I just think it's a mistake. But I think there's going to be a lot more kind of unusual growing pains like that that if Pat can weather the storm and make a deal with himself and sort of not be scared to be a college basketball coach, he very much could succeed and kind of pave the way for a new generation of college coach. It's just how quickly is he going to recognize that and feel like he he needs to do it. If you enjoyed this podcast and are interested in learning more about the NBA, you can get my weekly NBA newsletter, the Monday Morning Post-Up, delivered right to your inbox every Monday morning at 8 a.m. To do so, please go to wapo.st slash postupnewsletter to subscribe. You'll get an original column from me, links to my work from the past week, links to work from both my colleagues at the Washington Post and other writers from around the web about the league, a viewing guide for the week ahead, and some dining and pop culture recommendations. Again, to subscribe to the Monday Morning Post-Up, please go to wapo.st slash postupnewsletter and start your week off right with everything you need to know about the NBA. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you completely. So I guess in summation then, you know, you, you spent a lot of time with him. You spent a lot of time talking to other people. You know, I, I know this isn't a... This is kind of a tough question to answer, but if you had to bet one way or the other, how do you think this plays out? I mean, do you think it's 
Uh, I, I guess I'll give you three options. You think this is, you know, an unmitigated disaster that just doesn't work for three or four years and then the whole thing is scrapped? Do you think it's somewhere in the middle where, like, he kind of muddles along and does okay for a while and then moves on? Or do you think it's, you know, he does somewhere between, you know, well and really well and, you know, it has a pretty successful run as, as the coach there? Oh, um, I think he's too smart for it to be a, an unmitigated disaster. I And... <laughs> I think he's too stubborn for it to be, you know, they're going to be back in the final four in five years. Right. Um, it's, I think it's, I mean, I guess it's the middle one that you said, because I think what's going to wind up happening, this is just my theory that he's going to do it his way and kind of stubbornly and just see how it goes. He'll get some players. I mean, like they're like, he's a big enough name and Georgetown still has some residual brand that he'll get some players, but I think he'll get to the tournament every once in a while and it won't be enough for most fans but because it's Georgetown, and in particular, if John Thompson's still hanging around, he'll be safe. I mean, there's a reason they gave him a six-year contract, which is essentially unheard of for a first-time head coach. And I think he will basically be there as long as he'd like to be, no matter like without real regard for upper-level success. I mean, like, and that's probably not what a lot of Georgetown fans want to hear. But I mean, I could see them winning 18 or 20 games a year and slipping into the tournament, maybe winning a game or two. But man, I, I think some dramatic changes would have to be made and adjustments while he continually finds his voice as a coach and a recruiter for them to reach the level of success that I think he wants. Now, it could happen. I don't think it's going to happen fast, and maybe that's okay. But I also don't think he's going to be a disaster because I, I just think he's too smart for that. I, I think he's a survivalist. I mean, if in other words, I think if it's a disaster, the only way I think it's a disaster is if he's there, realizes this job is not for me, and heads on back to the NBA where he belongs. Yeah, no, I would agree with you. I think, I think Pat, I, I think one advantage Pat is going to have is, frankly, a lot of these college coaches don't know what they're doing when the game starts, and I think Pat should have a pretty good idea of that. I mean, everything I've heard is that he's a pretty sharp in-game guy, um, and, and I think if he can. If he can translate that to the college game, I think that will go a long way towards helping him at least, like you said, at least avoid that that first option where things are just really bad. But I do agree with you that I think some of the inherent stubbornness that's there and maybe maybe a, a lack of willingness to really play the game will probably prevent him and probably prevent Georgetown, frankly, because, you know, like you've mentioned a couple times, I mean, there are a few places in the in the country in terms of college basketball that are more stubborn and then Georgetown in the way they, they do their business and the way they go about things. Um, for all the good things about it, about the school, it, it is a place that, that certainly believes that there's one way to do things and it's their way to do it. Um, and I, I think until Much of which is, is, is very outdated, I yes. should say. And yes. so, like, that's, you know, they, they just don't play the game the way I think that a lot of people, you know, whether that's recruits or media members or fans or just people who care about college basketball, I don't think they do it in a way that anybody else does. And like, you could call that unique and you could call it bullheaded. I personally think they have been bullheaded in recent years. They've shown me some things that make me think they're trying to come around, that they're hoping and trying to come around and at least modernize themselves. But I mean, certainly during this reporting process, I joke to friends that, you know, man, Georgetown where it's always 1988. And that's just kind of how they do stuff. I mean, like that's, they are very set in their ways and I get it, but man, it's 2017, it's probably time to evolve a little bit and just do things the way things are done. (laughs) You know, like maybe not conform because I think that sounds bad. You know, I, you know, you don't establish your own identity, but just like upgrade, like catch yourself up a little bit with the times. And I I think they're trying and 
but we'll see. I mean, I, they should have hired a younger assistant. Their youngest assistant is 40 years old. Yeah, actually, I, I, wanted, I meant to ask you about that. I don't mean to cut you off, but I, I forgot to ask you a question about that. What Did you get an explanation as to why the staff was so old? I know I know you mentioned there he couldn't sign, he couldn't hire his son, Patrick Ewing Jr., who would, I think is in his late 20s, early 30s. But was was there any explanation for why there wasn't, you know, a younger staff? Because I would have thought... I would have thought going into it that if you're if you're Georgetown and you want this to work the best way possible, you're gonna go have you're gonna have Pat who you think can handle the in game stuff and then get a bunch of young, hungry guys to go get him players. So this is just something that I heard. This is not confirmed in you know, but I, I guess I believe it enough to say it out loud, but I believe that they were courting a younger, connected DC area coach, amateur coach. I won't say who and I won't say who this person is affiliated with. But they just didn't want to get they didn't want to go down that rabbit hole. And in some ways, I think Georgetown has sort of made an institutional decision not to get in bed with, you know, the AAU circuit around here for what it might mean. And I mean, you see it across college basketball, just like, you know, if certain AAU program helps to deliver a recruit, then suddenly the coach or whoever on that team is now, you know, the third assistant for Kansas State or something like that. They They suddenly make that leap to college basketball, which is hard. And so, like, I think Georgetown is really nervous about that. So, like, what I kept hearing was there was an individual who really could have helped them in the short term, who's very young, certainly very plugged in, but they just couldn't do it. You know, they just, like, from a variety of standpoints, they just didn't want to do it. And they wound up hiring, um, I mean, they kept one staffer on. They hired Louis Orr, who's a former NBA player, who Pat is super close friends with, but he's older. He's actually older than Pat. And... But at, like at least he is a guy who was a college coach and kind of understands the scene, though. So in that sense, I did think that was a decent hire, personally. Maybe, maybe. I mean, I, I think there's a, like, yeah, I mean, like, I think there's somebody who can sort of explain to him the nuances of being a college head coach. But I think balance, to, to for this to have been, to gotten off to the start it needed to have gotten off to, he would have balanced that out, you know, kind of had the, the wise old sage and Louis Orr with, 31-year-old mover and shaker who knows D.C., Baltimore, Charlotte, you know, kind of that region who can kind of help get you in. So, okay, maybe Pat doesn't want to kiss the ring. You then have an assistant who knows that world and will kiss the ring for you almost. And so, right. I don't know. I, I personally, it's easy for me to say, I personally probably would have hired somebody like that, even if it would raise some red flags, but I would have kept that person on a very short leash just to kind of get get off to a quick start. I just think like these coaches and these, you know, you look at what Chris Mullen is doing at St. John's, man, like these guys, these 16, 17-year-old kids are not famous. You know, like Patrick Ewing is one of the most famous people to ever play basketball, and they don't know who he is. Right. <laughs> I mean, like that's just how it goes. Well, and it, so, it, No, and I was just going to say the one thing about Mullen's staff is that, I mean, he's got a young guy, uh, you know, in Greg St. John that that's like, doing a lot of the the in-game stuff and a lot of the coaching for him. He's also got this guy, Matt Abdel Nasser, who came from Ohio, uh, from Iowa State under Fred Hoiberg, and he's a straight recruiter. And he's going – like, there's a reason St. John's, despite the fact that you're 100% right about Mullen, St. John's involved with a lot of high-level kids, and they're getting some real legit talent to go there. Now, I don't know if Mullen's going to be able to make, them, make it work on the court, but they're getting players. And, but you said why – like, I think you said why they've – they're in is because they have that young. No, that's what I was going to say. They they went and got that guy and Georgetown didn't. And I I do wonder that, that I think could really be a problem because I actually think Pat will do a decent job with, I think he can do a good job with talent, 
But if they don't have anybody that can go get the talent and he's not going to do the other stuff like you were alluding to, then I just think they could really be in some trouble. And, and Pat is a really easy-going guy. He's really he's super easy to talk to. You know, I think, like, if, if he is a closer, you know, if he goes in, like, if a recruit is down to, you know, we'll say Kentucky and Georgetown, you know, which is probably a little ways away for where Georgetown currently is. But, hey, we'll say it. And if Patrick Ewing comes through the door and young recruiter guy on the staff has said, like, let me show you some highlights of who this guy used to be. And, oh, by the way, you're 6'10", you want to play center in the NBA. Let me show you the a guy with essentially a Ph.D. in playing center in the NBA. Yep. And, oh, wait, here he is. He's coming in right now to tell you why you should play at Georgetown. Man, that's how effective is that, at least to me. And, you know, but you need somebody to sort of bridge the generational gap a little bit, and they don't have that. Like, I think if you're 16 and 40-year-old guy, which is their youngest assistant, if he walks into the house, it's a little harder. Like, he, that guy is, is much closer to Pat's age than he is, you know, 16-year-old recruit's age. And I think you need somebody kind of right in the middle who can say, hey, look, let me show you, I can I can speak to you on your level, yep. and I can also educate you on who Patrick Ewing once was and how he can help you. That's just what they don't have. And uh, again, I think you can make an argument that they played it safe, that, okay, they don't want to like set a precedent early of like climbing into bed with the AAU circuit, which, yes, has a reputation of having some sleaze. They're certainly not all like that but it has a reputation or do you jump in with both feet and say, I got to get players. Like that's the most important thing in the world. I know I want to run an NBA offense. I got to get players to do it. So man, like I got to make a sacrifice somewhere. I guess I'll do it by taking on a coach with maybe some complications. Um, so whatever they made their decision and we'll see if it works out. I think it, they definitely played it on the safer side. And, and to me anyway, that doesn't often work out. Yeah, no, I, I agree totally, and it will be really interesting to see uh, how it shakes out. One more thing before we go on a different topic, but another Georgetown guy. You wrote a book about Allen Iverson. Uh, I covered the initial game or the initial uh, whatever it's called, the initial day of the Big Three uh, league this year where Allen was supposed to be the face of the league, played for about 90 seconds, and then just stood on the sideline the whole time. He has since uh, not showed up for games. He's been suspended for games. He's... You know, essentially not really been a factor at all in the league, uh, which certainly makes sense given he's been retired for several years from the NBA and was not really anywhere near uh, ready to play at the end of his career even. Um, I guess just from your standpoint as a guy who spent a lot of time studying Allen and his career and, and everything about him, uh, have you had any thoughts on the way this whole Big Three thing has gone and kind of the way it's shaken out and just how he's kind of been – you know, kind of this ornamental figure for this league, but not really done anything at all for it. I think you're asking me if I'm surprised that Allen, if I, that Allen Iverson has blown off something <laughs> and at, the, at the risk of sounding like a cynic. Uh, no, I'm not. And like, right. look, man, like I've, I've been on record a, a thousand times. I feel like saying that I root for Allen Iverson. I am a child of the Allen Iverson generation. I was 16, you know, when he's like crossing over Michael Jordan and, you know, like 19 when he won the MVP like, he is my generation, and I love the guy, and I think he's awesome and changed the league, and, and for, for the better, and in almost every way, it's just he has never been able to get out of his own way. He makes these very excited, breathless commitments of what he wants to do, and it sounds awesome, like, in the moment, and then he realizes that the obligation of it is terrible, and he just can't do it, and, like, I think that's what it is. He's a man who just cannot stand obligation and, you know, like I think when him and Ice Cube were talking and, you know, hey, there's this kind of 
you know, old timers league and we're going to bring it back and you're going to be able to play some and show that you still got some, you know, some moves. Um, that sounds great. And you know, hell yeah, let's do that. And then like, man, I got to do this night after night and I got to travel some and I got to go over to the arena. Uh, I'd rather just like stay here and, you know, watch TV or, or whatever he does. <laughs> right. And, and he just won't do it. I mean, like, and it's been so predictably awkward that like that league has to come out and have a videotape statement from him and uh, Ice Cube has sus- suspended him. I mean, it's over. I mean, like it is over. And so, like, I know they don't want to just like cut ties with Allen Iverson, who's one of the handful of people in that league who has like real fame. But it's not going to work. And and I hate to say it, but like, if you ever depend on Allen Iverson for more than a one day engagement you're a fool and it's just not ever going to work with him. And it doesn't matter what he says. And I know people, you know, are charmed by him. I found myself being charmed by him while I was reporting the book. I mean, like he is a little bit of a virus who gets under your skin and my God, the symptom is that you want him to succeed so bad because he's got the sweet side and this ambitious side and he's so earnest. But the, the worst thing is this like anti-truth serum that it makes you forget how undependable he can be and has been for so much of his life. And Larry Brown suffers from that affliction. Uh, Aaron McKee, you know, fell victim to the Allen Iverson virus, Pat Croce, all these guys. And sadly, I think now we can add Ice Cube to the, to the patients who, who have suffered from the Allen Iverson disease. I mean, like it, and it's never going to go away and that's sad, but in a weird way, that's sort of part of the charm is that, and I think he likes that. I think he likes sort of being this, you know, fashionably late if I show up at all guy and you know I think that makes him feel cool and it is cool in some ways unless you're the guy who depends on him to make your business go yeah no I, I think that's well said that's why I wanted to ask you about it I mean I, I like I said I was at that first game at Barclays Center and you know there there was probably 10,000 people there 9,000 of them there would see Allen Iverson play and people were not happy when he played for 90 seconds and, you know, I basically, I mean, I, I was already skeptical of the whole league to begin with, but, you know, I, I certainly was skeptical about Allen's ability to be a long-term factor in it. And when I saw, you know, him, you know, basically trot out there for a couple of possessions, go one for, I think one for seven or something and just look horrible. You know, I was, I was pretty convinced that he was going to be like, I ain't doing this. And, you know, there was, it was just going to slide downhill from there. And like you said, it's quite predictably given his track record, that's exactly what's happened. But the only thing that Allen Iverson has ever been better at than playing basketball is convincing people that he's dependable now and that he's <laughs> like yeah. that, you know, the the old Allen is gone. You know, I know you heard that I used to show up for these photo shoots 12 hours late or, you know, stuff like that. You know, so like a writer friend of mine who I got to know during the reporting of the book said that Iverson showed up. I think it was like 36 hours late for a meeting. I mean, I may be wrong about that, but like I'm in the ballpark. I mean, it was not like three hours late, which would have been but, rude. Right. But something like 36 hours late. And this is like, I mean, this guy traveled to Atlanta to go meet him. And yeah, you know, we'll meet at seven o'clock in the Omni lobby or something like that. And 36 hours later, I don't think my buddy like sat there the whole time, but like 36 hours later, he's like, oh yeah, I'm on my way. And I mean, like, so it's very easy to listen to him. And like, he's so convincing and sweet in some ways that you really want to believe him. And it's like, yeah, man, like this is somebody who's these kinds of words are coming out of their mouth. Like I can believe him. Like he owns his mistakes of the past, 
until he's got to show up a second time. Right. It's just not going to happen. It's just right. like, it's just not going to happen with him. And that's, that's unfortunate, but it's the truth. Right. No, that's, that's very true. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for the time, man. I appreciate it before, before you go, do you have anything you want to plug that's coming up beyond, uh, beyond people needing to go back and look at the Pat story if they haven't read it yet? Uh, that, that would probably be the biggest thing right now. Uh, I'd like for people to read it and see what they think. I mean, I'd like to hear from them and let me know if they think it can succeed or whether I was, too cynical or not cynical enough. Um, I always am interested in that. I mean, like, cause again, like Patrick Ewing for people, I think your age and mine, I mean, I think he predates us by a little bit, like primo Ewing, um, you know, when he was at his absolute apex, but we know who he is and respect what he was. And, you know, I, I do want it to work out because I, I like to see things change and I think they would. And so anyway, like that's like, I wouldn't, I would appreciate it if people would check that story out and tell me what they think yeah people definitely should it's very good so thanks thanks for stopping by man and uh enjoy dad duty all right man thanks timmy good talking to you thanks again to kent for coming on the podcast you can follow him on twitter at kent bab and please go check out his feature on ewing and the georgetown program for the washington post as well as his alan iverson book not a game you can find me on twitter at tim bontemps on facebook at tim bontemps nba and both on washingtonpost.com and in the pages of the newspaper please find the podcast on itunes stitcher wherever else you get it Give us a five-star rating and review. It's really helpful and appreciated. Also, go check out some of our other cool podcasts like Constitutional, Can He Do That, and the Fantasy Football Beat. Thanks to Glenn Yoder in the Western States for providing the theme music for the podcast. Be sure to go check out their work online and support them. They're awesome. Thank you to all of you for listening, and we'll talk to you all again soon. 